I'd like to thank Aaron K for sponsoring this week's Torah content. June is less than a month away, which means that I'll soon be transitioning into summer writing mode with more Substack articles and fewer recorded shirim. The bulk of these articles will remain free. However, if you would like to support my Torah and access additional spicy written content, consider becoming a paid subscriber by going to rabbishnewis.substack.com. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the article I wrote originally on my blog at kolhasredim.blogspot.com on June 1st, 2018, which I have edited and republished on my Substack at rabbishnewis.substack.com on June 7th, 2023. And the article is entitled, Beha'alosicha, Moshe's View of Miracles. Introduction. The episode in the wilderness known as the Kibros Hatava, the Graves of Desire, begins with B'nai Israel's craving for meat instigated by the Erev Rav, the mixed multitude. Quote from Bamidbar 11, 4 through 6, The multitude that was among them cultivated a craving, and the children of Israel also wept once more and said, Who will feed us meat? We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt free of charge, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our life is parched. There is nothing. We have nothing to anticipate but the man. End quote. Moshe Rabbeinu responds to their outcry in an uncharacteristically agitated manner. Quote from Bamidbar 11, 11 through 15. Moshe said to Hashem, Why have you done evil to your servant? Why have I not found favor in your eyes that you place the burden of this entire people upon me? Did I conceive this entire people or did I give birth to it that you say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a suckling to the land that you swore to its forefathers? Where shall I get meat to give to this entire people when they weep to me saying, give us meat that we may eat? I alone cannot carry this entire nation for it is too heavy for me. And if this is how you deal with me, then kill me now if I found favor in your eyes and let me not see my wretchedness. End quote. Clearly, there is a lot to understand here. A full analysis of Moshe's reaction is beyond the scope of this blog post, of this article. I refer you to Rabbi Soloveitchik's shear, available uh, in audio and in transcript. You should see the post for, uh, for links there. In this article, I intend to focus only on Moshe's dialogue with Hashem regarding B'nai Israel's demand for meat. The question. After instructing Moshe to gather 70 elders to help him bear the burden of leadership, Hashem tells Moshe how he intends to address B'nai Israel's demand for meat. Quote from 11, 18 through 20. Hashem said to Moshe, To the people you shall say, Prepare for yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of Hashem, saying, Who will feed us meat? It was better for us in Egypt. So Hashem will give you meat, and you will eat. Not for one day shall you eat, nor for two days, nor for five days, nor for ten days, nor for twenty days, until an entire month of days, until it comes out of your nose and becomes nauseating to you, because you have rejected Hashem who is in your midst, and you have wept before him, saying, Why did we leave Egypt? End quote. Hashem responds by telling Moshe to inform B'nai Israel that he will provide them with more meat than they can handle, as a way of rebuking them for their underlying desire to return to Egypt. One might expect Moshe to accept this without objection. Instead, he bemoans the logistics of Hashem's plan. Quote from Bamidbar 11, 21 through 22. Moshe said, 600,000 foot soldiers are the people in whose midst I am, yet you say I shall give them meat and they shall eat for a month of days? Can sheep and cattle be slaughtered for them and suffice for them? Or if all the fish of the sea will be gathered for them, would it, would it suffice for them? End quote. On the surface, it seems then as though Moshe doubts Hashem's ability to miraculously provide meat. This reading of Moshe's words is supported by Hashem's response to Moshe's question. Quote from Bamidbar 11.23, Hashem said to Moshe, is the hand of Hashem limited? Now you shall see whether my word comes to pass or not. End quote. Hashem then provides meat by causing the wind to blow quail from the sea. A wind went forth from Hashem and blew quail from the sea and spread them over the camp. A day's journey this way and a day's journey that way. All around the camp, two cubits above the face of the earth. That was from Bamidbar 11, 33, 31 through 32. This exchange between Moshe and Hashem is problematic. The psukim make it sound as though Moshe doubted Hashem's ability to provide meat for B'nai Israel. 
The question is, what was Moshe thinking? After all, this is Moshe Rabbeinu we're talking about, the greatest Navi who ever existed, through whom Hashem performed the miraculous ten plagues, the splitting of the sea, the man in the wilderness, and a number of other miracles and wonders. How could he express incredulity about Hashem's ability to perform this simple miracle of providing meat for the nation? The Ron's answer. The Ran provides an eye-opening answer to this question in the eighth drasha of his drasha Saran. As is my custom, I will first present a translation of the relevant excerpt with my own para- paragraph breaks for clarity, and I will then summarize and comment on each point. The Ran writes, quote, Hashem's desire and will is to maintain the natural order, minhagosha olam, as much as possible. Nature, teva, is precious in his eyes, and he will only change it if there is an absolute necessity. It is because of this that Moshe said, can sheep and cattle be slaughtered for them and suffice for them, etc. For Moshe thought that Hashem would not generate a miracle and a wonder in order to fill their bellies with something that is not necessary. He was astonished and wondered how, by natural means, he would be able to provide enough meat for those people. And since the natural order is precious in Hashem's eyes and he desires it, as we've written about, then sometimes when it becomes necessary for him to do a miracle on a wonder, he will intermingle it with a natural phenomenon which will serve as a basis for that miracle, even though that natural phenomenon is not sufficient to bring about that miracle, but is merely a support for it. As an example of this, an example of this is what Elisha said to the woman from among the wives of the prophet's disciples in Malachim 2, uh, chapter 4, Pasuk 2. Elisha said, tell me, what do you have in your in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except for a jar of oil. And he responded to her, go borrow vessels for yourself from the outside, from all your neighbors. Empty vessels do not be sparing. Elisha then went on, on to miraculously fill all the empty vessels with oil from that single oil jar, from that single jar, original jar. There's no doubt that it would have been impossible within the laws of nature to produce that much oil from that jar. As impossible as it would, as there were, as impossible as if there were no oil there at all. Nevertheless, the Navi's request was in line with Hashem's will that this miracle should have a natural basis to lean on. End quote from the Ron. The Ron makes four points, which we will now summarize and briefly analyze. Point number one, nature is precious in Hashem's eyes. Truthfully, this point deserves its own article since it has so many implications and there's so much evidence to support it. Instead of writing my own thoughts about this, I will quote an excerpt from the introduction to a well-known essay written by my Rosh Yeshiva. Quote, Judaism, as seen through the eyes of the scholars of the Talmud, has its own unique religious orientation. While basing itself on a cataclysmic event, revelation, it does not look to miracles as the source of its intimate relationship with God. God's revelation at Sinai was a one-time occurrence, never to be repeated. This is expressed in Deuteronomy 5.19, a great voice which was not heard again. In the mind of the Talmudic scholar, God continuously reveals himself not through miracles, but through the wisdom of his laws. These laws manifest themselves in Torah, the written and oral law, and in nature. The psalmist expresses this view most clearly. He speaks freely of the wonders of nature and the awe-inspiring universe, as in Psalms 8.4, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've established. Psalm 104, dedicated to the wonders of nature, climaxes with the exclamation, How many are your works, O Lord? You have made them all with wisdom. Regarding the sheer intellectual joy one derives from studying Torah, he states, The Torah of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making wise the simpleton. The precepts of the Lord are upright, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is lucid, enlightening the eye. The statutes of the Lord are true. They are all in total harmony. They are more to be desired than gold, even fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. When speaking of man's search for God, the psalmist states, The Lord from heaven looked down upon the children of men to see if there were any man of understanding searching for God. That's in Psalms 14.2. Man discovers God only through understanding. Accordingly, the righteous are depicted as being constantly involved in the process of searching for and discovering God. Uh, but only in the Torah of the Lord is his desire, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. Psalms 1.2. Maimonides sharply criticizes 
those who consider themselves religious and search for God through the miraculous. Say to a person who believes himself to be of the wise men of Israel that the Almighty sends his angels into the womb of a woman and to form there the fetus. He will be satisfied with the account. He will believe in it. He will believe it and find in it a description of the greatness of God's might and wisdom. Although he believes that angel, that, that angel consists of burning fire in his is as big as a third part of the universe, yet he considers it possible as a divine miracle. But tell him that God gave the seed a formative power which produces and shapes the limbs, and he will turn away because he cannot comprehend the true greatness and power of bringing into existence forces active in a thing that cannot be perceived by the senses. When Judaism, sorry, uh, yeah, while Judaism is based on a supernatural event, it is not oriented toward the supernatural. The essence of Judaism is not realized through religious fervor over the miraculous, but through an appreciation of God's wisdom as revealed both in Torah and the natural world. A miracle, being a breach of God's law, does not contribute to this appreciation. This distinction is crucial since it gives Judaism its metaphysical uniqueness. End quote from the essay. I believe that the view expressed by my Rosh Hayeshiva is what the Ran means when he says that nature is precious in Hashem's eyes. He cannot mean that nature is precious to Hashem simply because he created it. This wouldn't warrant the word precious, which implies that it is more valuable to Hashem, so to speak, than other things in his world. Rather, nature is precious in Hashem's eyes in that it provides the basis of man's relationship to Hashem, namely the wisdom and beauty of the divinely authored laws of nature. Nature is precious as a means of drawing closer to Hashem. That, according to the Ron, is why Hashem is reluctant, so to speak, to do miracles, except when absolutely necessary. A miracle is a pagam, a blemish, which mars the beauty of Hashem's wondrous laws of nature. Point number two, conservation of miracles. The Ron's second point is an explicit formulation of what I've heard some people refer to as the law of conservation of miracles. Hashem doesn't perform miracles gratuitously. Rather, he will only perform a miracle when it is, quote-unquote, absolutely necessary. The Rambam mentions an application of the law of the conservation of miracles in his discussion about Nevuah, prophecy, emphasizing the point that all of Moshe's miracles were done out of practical necessity not to establish his prophecy. Quote from Hilchus Yosodei Torah 8.1, Israel did not believe in Moshe Rabbeinu because of the miraculous signs he performed. For one whose belief is based on miracles will have doubt in his heart, since it is possible that he did these miracles using trickeries, uh, illusions and trickery. Rather, all the miracles he performed in the wilderness he did out of necessity, not to bring a proof for his prophecy. He needed the Egyptians to be drowned, he split the sea and drowned them in it. We needed sustenance, he brought down the man. We were thirsty, he split the stone for them. The congregation of Korach denied him, he caused the earth to swallow them, and the same for all the other miraculous signs. End quote. As a Chumash teacher, I'm often asked, why didn't Hashem solve such and such a problem by miraculously doing such and such? Although this question must be taken up on a case-by-case basis, the, the general answer can be boiled down to the law of the conservation of miracles. If a natural solution is possible, Hashem will not make a recourse to miracles. And even when he does resort to miracles, he will minimize his intervention in the laws of nature as much as possible. This is the basis of the Ron's answer to our question about Moshe's response to Hashem's proposed solution for the meat crisis. Point number three, Moshe's response to the meat crisis. According to the Ron, Moshe's response, can sheep and cattle be slaughtered for them and suffice for them, etc., did not stem from any disbelief in Hashem's ability to do miracles. Rather, Moshe was operating under the assumption that Hashem wouldn't do a miracle in this particular case. He reasoned that Hashem wouldn't do a miracle since it, was, since it wasn't absolutely necessary for Bnei Israel to eat meat. Therefore, he assumed that the solution to Bnei Israel's dissatisfaction would have to be found within the laws of nature, and that seemed to be an impossible task to him. Uh, parenthetically, indeed, the Chizkuni learns that Moshe thought that the 70 elders were appointed to help him with all of the meat slaughtering. Part of his question, can sheep and cattle be slaughtered for them and suffice for them, was, how can 71 men slaughter enough meat for 600,000 men? According to the Ron, 
Hashem's response to Moshe is the hand of Hashem limited was not intended to rebuke Moshe for thinking that the hand of Hashem is limited. Rather, his response was intended to correct Moshe's mistaken impression that the meat would be provided by his own hand rather than Hashem's hand. The rhetorical formulation of Hashem's rebuke was intended to highlight Moshe's mistake about whose hand would provide the meat. Unfortunately, I do not know of any commentary by the Ron on the second part of Hashem's response. Now you will see whether my word comes to pass or not, which seems to imply that Moshe did have some doubt as to whether the word of Hashem would come to pass. Let me know if you find or think of anything on this remaining question. Point number four, miracles via nature. The Ron's fourth and final point is related to his first point. Because nature is precious in Hashem's eyes, then even when it becomes necessary for him to do a miracle, he will do it by using a natural phenomenon as a quote-unquote support in order to convey his reluctance, so to speak, to completely do away with nature. The, the examples of this principle are too numerous to recount here. I'll just mention a few. Hashem could have just miraculously protected Noah, his family, and the animals. Instead, he made Noah uh, build an ark and gather a male and female of each species. Undoubtedly, Undoubtedly, this also required miraculous invent intervention, but the miracle was done using nature as a support. The flood itself is an example of this. Hashem could have instantaneously zapped all the evildoers. Instead, he utilized a natural disaster of miraculous proportions. Hashem could have designed the ten plagues to be completely supernatural. Instead, he utilized natural phenomena and caused them to behave in unnatural ways. Hashem could have split the sea by causing the waters to levitate or miraculously move aside on their own. Instead, Hashem moved the sea with a strong east wind all the night. This principle answers many questions about why Hashem performed specific miracles in the manner that he did. As the creator of the universe, Yeshme Ayin, Ex Nihilo, of course Hashem could do miracles in any way he desires. Yet, he opts to incorporate nature as much as possible into these miraculous interventions in order to convey to us how precious nature is in his eyes. Concluding Thoughts I think there is an important lesson we can learn by comparing the popular view of miracles to Moshe's view of miracles, as explained by the Ran. The Rambam, in his Mamar Tchias Amesim, uh, the treatise on the resurrection of the dead. And you can see my article entitled on interpreting miracle stories in the Talmud for a further explanation of this view. Rambam, sorry, I interrupted the recording. The Rambam articulates the popular view in his Mamar Tchias Amesim. Quote, I will explain to you that which brought me to this approach and that and that is that our aim and the aim of every intelligent person among the, the select few is opposite to the aim of the masses of people. For the most cherished and beloved thing to the masses of Torah-observant people, because of their ignorance, is to consider the Torah and human intellect to be two opposite poles. Everything which is incomprehensible to the intellect, they consider to be a miracle. They flee from explaining something as a natural phenomenon, whether it pertains to something recorded in the past or in regard to something which is discernible at the present time or whether it relates to something which is written will happen in the future. We, on the other hand, strive to reconcile the Torah with human intellect and regard everything in its natural light whenever, po wherever possible, unless it is self-evident therefrom that it is of miraculous connotation and cannot be interpreted at all. Then we are forced to say it is a miracle, end quote. The masses of Torah-observant people look for miracles everywhere. They are eager to posit a miracle whenever possible. In their eyes, the more miraculous the, the miracle is, the better. Many even believe that nature diminishes Hashem's greatness and detracts from our ability to relate to Him. For Moshe Rabbeinu, we see that the Torah encourages the opposite of this orientation towards miracles. Moshe didn't expect Hashem to do a miracle for him, even though it would have solved a lot of problems, since he knew that Hashem only does miracles when they are absolutely necessary. Moshe knew that even when Hashem does perform a miracle, he uses natural phenomena as a support in order to convey how precious nature is in his eyes. The reason for this is because nature exhibits the wisdom of the Creator and is our greatest vehicle for relating to Him. As tempting as it might be to seek out the miraculous as a basis for our relationship to God, His preference is for us to seek Him by appreciating the wondrous wisdom of His natural law.
How great are your works, Hashem. With wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creations. Indeed, this is why the Torah presents us not only this is why the Torah presents us with not only the historical account of the miracles that Hashem did, but also includes the information we need in order to learn how Hashem wants us to relate to His miracles. The challenge is to set aside our own preconceived notions, wishes, and fantasies about divine intervention, and instead to learn about the ways of Hashem from the words and teachings of Hashem in His Torah. If you've gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss, and my Zelle slash Chase QuickPay and PayPal are mattschneeweiss at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor an article, share, or podcast episode, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbischneeweiss at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading, and thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.